This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Welcome to another edition of Politico's EU Confidential Podcast. Do not adjust your phone or your computer or your tablet. Ryan Heath has not suddenly developed a Scottish accent. My name's Andrew Gray and I'm sitting in for Ryan while he's on holiday. And in today's programme, we've raided the archive to bring you something a bit different. Those who failed into proposing something convincing for people, I think, guys, please don't move. We will stay like that. We will freeze everything. No new stuff. I don't want as a citizen to be captured by such a stupidity. I'm sorry to say that. Emmanuel Macron, as you've never heard him before, at length and in English, at a political event in Brussels last year. Macron hasn't given any in-depth interviews since he became president. But in this interview, you'll hear his views on French politics, on trade, on Europe, and even on IKEA furniture. To set up the interview, we talked to Politico's senior Paris correspondent, Pierre Briançon, who was on stage with Macron that night. The man himself, however, has changed dramatically because we went from very congenial Macron, campaigning Macron, and we should have listened more carefully that he would be a Jupiter-like president, a distant, prestigious president, because he felt that the prestige of the presidency had been lost. We also talk commissioners' expenses and how to network as an intern in Brussels in our EU WTF and Dear Political features with regular Alva Finn and Politico's own Harry Cooper. So, first to Emmanuel Macron. And to set the scene, I called up our Paris bureau and spoke to senior correspondent Pierre Briançon. Pierre, you and Ryan spoke to Emmanuel Macron last year. What was the setting? The conversation we had on stage and we invited a few of the political readers. He had founded his own, what he didn't call a party, it was a movement, but was still shy of declaring whether he really would run for president. It was an open secret that he would actually run, of course. Yeah, and at that time, did he seem like a, a polished presidential candidate? Did he seem like a president-in-waiting? Well, it depends what we call a polished presidential candidate because he made almost a job of being unpolished in terms of being not like the other guys, not being the absolutely brand new thing, making a virtue out of what some people would have characterized as drawbacks to run for president. His youth, 
his relative inexperience in executive. I mean, he had only been an economy minister, which is not a powerful ministry in the French government system. So he had only been that for two years. Before that, just for two years, a economic advisor to François Hollande. But being green for him was an advantage he wanted to capitalize on because he felt that the French opinion was ripe for radical change in political personnel and he wanted to lead that change. Right, which he ended up doing very effectively, of course. Now, how is that Macron or the Macron that was pre-candidate Macron, then we had candidate Macron and now we have President Macron. How has he evolved or changed over that time or has he? It's light and day between President Macron and candidate Macron. I'm not saying that he's governing differently than for what he promised, quite the opposite. Again, he also made a case that he would implement all his platform, nothing but his platform. There wouldn't be any surprise decisions in terms of economic policy or anything else, domestic policy in general. And the platform was, if you want, the little red book of candidate Macron. On substance, on that in that part, we see pretty much what he had promised to do. I mean, there are no... The agenda he said for the next two years, the legislative agenda, is exactly what had been described and expected during his campaign. The man himself, however, has changed dramatically because we went from very congenial Macron, campaigning Macron, where everyone is a friend. I've never met a journalist or reporter I didn't love. No microphone should be ignored. No questions were unanswered throughout the campaign. I mean, I can't count the number of interviews he gave, even to the print press, even specialized press. I mean, I'm sure he gave an interview to the monthly of the Butchers Association to explain his meat policy, for example. I wouldn't be surprised he did that. So he had a plan for everyone and everything, uh, every industrial sector, every profession. And so he was all over the place. He had warned, and we should have listened more carefully, that he would be a Jupiter-like president, a distant, almost monarchic, prestigious president, because he felt that the prestige of the presidency had been lost under both François Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy, the conservative predecessor, in the last 10 years. So he wanted to restore what he called the dignity and the prestige of the presidential function in France. He did that, I mean, when I'm talking for light and day, it's almost literal because you can give us reporters, we stopped seeing him. He became very highly visible because he is a presidency of images on video clips more than one of words or deeds. So he's being shown, but he's not being... I mean, he doesn't talk much. He has refrained from giving any serious substantive interviews in the three months he's been in office. He has instructed his aides and government ministers to be as silent as they could in terms of media presence. And so... It was a bit of a surprise. I think it's obviously backfiring now because that distant presidential style is not really compatible with French institutions where everything basically goes back up to the president. 
One of the things that he talks about in your interview is about his vision for Europe. As you mentioned in the interview, he even at that stage had identified Europe as what he thought could be a winning issue for him in, in contrast to the political mood uh, towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year, where you know Europe was often seen as a liability, not something to stress if you wanted to win an election. What's his vision for Europe? And is he as committed a European as he sounds in this interview? Oh, absolutely. This is one of the big areas of consistency between the candidate, between actually what he's, he'd always said as economy minister, then as candidate, and he implements that as a president, is his vision for a Europe where France plays all its role, but only its role, and where the French-German relationship is at the core of European integration. He hasn't varied. His foreign policy, some would say, is almost exclusively a German policy. And those are the only domains where he has actually made progress, made suggestions, suggested policies. His idea is that France in the world by itself doesn't weigh much. And I mean, it's a traditional both goal of French policy, idea of French foreign policy, is that you only exist through the European Union. And so the partnership with Germany is tantamount to that. He has to restore French credibility in terms of being able to implement economic reforms. That's why he has been so intent on the French deficit remaining under the EU limit in order to demonstrate and to show to Germany that he's serious, both on the deficit and on reforms, hence the labour reform that he's pushing very aggressively through Parliament. And so, no, I think this is very consistent with everything he has said, and we're going to see more of that in the next few months and years. And what's his next uh, challenge? Is, is the labour law, labour reform, is that going to be the next big hurdle he has to overcome? Well, he's got, because of the first three months made mostly of you know little blunders and, and let's say unconvincing th- first three months, he is faced with a potential situation in the fall because he's going to have the labour reform, a few cuts in housing benefits uh, have irked students, so he might face both, you know, what governments traditionally in France dread to face, which is both a, a workers' revolt and a student rebellion. So those are risks. I mean, I'm not talking about sure things, but he has to manoeuvre very carefully come September if he wants to avoid to be faced with a continuous street demonstrations from different constituencies. Great. Thanks, Pierre. One final question, which we need to answer for people who are going to listen to this interview who are maybe not so familiar with French literature, and it will become clear in the interview why they have to know this. Who is Julien Sorel? Julien Sorel is the the hero of his Tandal book, which has become almost the official book of the presidency ever since Macron posed for his official picture with uh, three books on his desk, which were Le Rouge et le Noir by Stendhal, the war memoirs of General de Gaulle, and I think Les Nourritures Terrestres from a 20th century writer André Gide. Oh yeah, and Sorel, what kind of a figure is he? A heroic figure? Is, is that how Macron sees himself? He's both a heroic and romantic figure, and that might be the reasons he has chosen. <laughs> Great. Thanks very much, Pierre. Uh, We'll listen to the interview now. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That was Politico's senior correspondent in France, Pierre Briançon. So now let's hear from the man himself, 
Emmanuel Macron on stage with Ryan Heath and Pierre last year in Brussels. I think that Mr. Macron needs no particular introduction, but let's call him France's favourite actor turned banker, turned minister, and now movement leader. Who are the sort of people that will join your movement? I think that you have had a very striking appeal. There has been a lot of attention in recent days about the vision that you are beginning to lay out. But who are the sort of people who will join your movement in Nancy or Tours? And what can they do to join aside from following you on Twitter? Look, first of all, you have a lot of people coming from civil society, being entrepreneurs, employees, unemployed people, politicians. We have a lot of people elected at the local authorities level and so on. First of all, now they join the movement with a very clear rule is that you can be part of an existing political movement and join this movement. That's an open one. Second, we have a manifesto, just to explain the key values, and I will revert on them. And third, it's to build precisely a consensus together. When I say a consensus, it's not just to, to try to mix ideas and try to mitigate some stuff and not to be sufficiently radical and clear about reforms. That's at the opposite. But first of all, we will mobilize these people and all the volunteers to go to people door by door just to have a qualitative approach of the country, just to make a sort of diagnosis about the country. For decades, we didn't reform the country. Why? Because we never created the situation with such an initiative. You can create such a consensus. And the method is absolutely critical. So that's what they will do all together in this movement. I think one of our issues in France is the lack of renewal in terms of politicians. Because now, I mean, being involved in politics is just about a profession. But that's an issue. Because it's a capture by a few people about public interests. And you don't have the same relationship with politics when it's your life when your life is dependent on the fact you will be re-elected, and when your life is just accumulation of mandates, you have remarkable people as politicians. Remarkable. But you need, I mean, we need such a renewal. And it's one of my perspective. And to create a status for politicians especially, just to say, we have to help people coming from civil society, coming from companies coming from unions and so on, or academics, to join politics for a while and to help them basically to recover a normal life afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think that's a necessity for our democracy. It sounds great. And I wanted to know if you had any personal experience of being excluded, being an outsider, being left out at some point in your life. And then related to that, because that sort of touches on experience. I've had a few people say to me, and I'm not agreeing with them, that your effort here is premature. And that seems to imply that because of your age, it's premature. So why are you qualified to speak about or involve the excluded? And why should you be the one leading this movement? Look, first of all, as a non-politician, I felt that. And probably it reinforced my deep conviction to do it. Because a lot of people told me, okay, you are a technocrat. You're not part of the club. You're not even elected. So please don't play this game. You're not part of it. 
okay, be minister a few months or a few semesters, mm -hmm. and you will see. And the argument of the fact I'm 38 is not an argument. I'm sorry to say that. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's better? You better understand the current world when you are 70? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm sorry to say that. What is something you know about this world or that you understand better than others who are older because of the fact that you're No, I think yes is not a counter-argument, mm -hmm. but it's not an argument for me, de facto. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's just a fact. I mean, But do you bring some value because of your a, age? You can sell it. You don't have to have it as a negative. I'm, I think I'm much more risk-taker. Mm -hmm. And I think risk is one of the key values in an open society and an innovative economy. Mm -hmm. I think we need an innovative economy. What does that mean? To be much more disruptive. Because a lot of things are about disruption. And our economy has been built on post-World War II structure. We were very good for long-term programs. We were very good with, I mean, the intervention of the government, large corporations, and so on. That's no more the case. Mm -hmm. Today, we are in a disruptive world. Our champions could remain champion if they are innovative enough, if they go fast enough. And we need to create new businesses. We are in a much more Schumpeterian world, which means that we need to be much more protective with people, but not with jobs. Mm -hmm. And we have to provide much more flexibility and agility to corporates. In our current system, we think that we protect people by protecting their job and by blocking companies when they had to adapt, which is a big mistake. What do you plan to do to talk to the people who cannot win from globalization, who feel they will never win, have never won? to the people who haven't known anything for the last 10 years than capitalism in crisis? I think you have two categories of people. The one you mentioned, outsiders. And I think outsiders are one of the energy of our country. And today, with a lot of our policies, in fact, we blocked outsiders, or we stopped them to enter into the system. Because we created a lot of protections, but these protections are a sort of a frontier. Because today, when you want to prevent people from being excluded, sometimes you install them in this exclusion. Or at least you put them in a situation to benefit from social benefits, which is the case. And we have a lot of social benefits. We have a generous system, much more than a lot of other countries. But they don't want social benefits. They want to be part of the system. But the lack of mobility is in fact a lack of perspective. And what they want to do, and they do accept even small jobs, because we have small jobs in France. When you accept to be driver for Uber, that's a small job, because you work much more than 35 hours a week. And de facto, your wage per hour is under the legal minimum. But they want to do so because they want to access. Yep. That's the key issue. That's for the outsiders. And a lot of them are full of energy. They just say, there is no place to me. And the second category you were mentioning is in fact about middle classes. And a lot of classical, I would say, middle classes in France who lived during decades with the perspective of a progress, with the perspective that it will, I mean, every year and year after year, it will be better. Their day-to-day life was much better than today, in fact. But the key difference was they had a perspective. And today their perspective is that their children 
will probably have, I mean, a bad life, or at least not as good as they have, which is an issue because you don't have a lot of perspective for yourself and for your children. You have to convince a lot of these people that we will not create the future of the country with the rules of the 50s, the 60s, or the 70s. We will not create the future of the country and their future and their children's future by proposing nothing except preservation of what we have. Because it's inconsistent with the fact that we are in an open world. Especially for middle classes. You need to readapt your training system and school system because what you need is to be equipped at the very beginning of your life. One last question on French politics. Um, could you, I mean, the dream of a going beyond the right and left divide is an old dream of French politics. You call, used to call the centre revival in the centre. It has always failed. Today, you are at risk of creating a fourth party because it's not a two-party system, it's a three, basically three-party system with a serious risk that Marine Le Pen, well, of course, will be in the second round. And as we saw with a, a poll today, might even, in some cases, uh, no, have, has a chance to win in the second round. Would you take the risk of not supporting a socialist candidate if that was the price? Why are we in a situation like this one with Front National? Why? I mean, because the two classical political parties failed in proposing something convincing to people? I'm sorry to say that. If we were fine with our right and our left, we would not be in such a situation with Front National as number one party in France in European elections and regional elections. I'm not the one who created such a situation. But now, those who failed into proposing something convincing for people are saying, guys, please don't move. We will stay like that. It's very good. <laughs> they are here now, so please, we will freeze everything. No other proposal. No new stuff. It's so risky with the Front National. Okay, that's a pure insider's rule. That's a pure insider's game. I don't want as a citizen to be captured by such a stupidity. I'm sorry to say that. That's crazy. Because the more we will apply such a rule, the more we will kill new ideas. But now, the most important thing for me is not this ligne maginot, in fact, between right and left. It's just what are the critical questions for the country? And for me, now, the division is not between, or the main difference is not between left and right, it's between progressives mm -hmm. and conservatives. But as you go and shape that offer, there's still real live issues that you need to take a position on. And to shift the discussion into the European sphere, a really good example where all those red buttons are being touched is something like TTIP, the free trade agreement, where there clearly isn't any consensus in France for that. But everything that you say that you support or that you would like to deliver for France somehow touches on being able to deliver an agreement like that. So I guess my question is, is TTIP dead or is something that you can do through your personal leadership or this movement, can it be saved? In principle, TTIP is a good thing for Europe mm -hmm. because I think trade is one of the engines for growth. It's not a classical trade agreement 
because it's not an agreement about tariffs. That's about our collective preferences. Mm -hmm. That's about standards. Cooperation. Cooperation. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's much more in-depth. Yeah. So we need time to be sure that it's fair and comprehensive. <laughs> That's key. Today, are we completely happy with the negotiation? Not. But not because it's dead. Just because we have to be extremely demanding. Like your position on steel. We built Europe on steel cooperation. We ask our people to make a lot of efforts. We restructured this industry. We dealt with our overcapacities and so on. And now you have hundreds of thousands of people working on the ground in this industry, attacked by unacceptable behavior by the Chinese, and we would not be in a situation to protect them. It's how to make Europe just inconsistent and ununderstandable for people. Because I'm the first one to say we have to reform, we have to modernize to succeed in globalization. But today these guys say, okay, but I have a Chinese steel arriving with a crazy price, which is the case today, because they have two years European consumption as overcapacities. And they go and they kill prices by 40 to 50%. So they killed almost all the European plants in terms of productivity. It's just unacceptable. The Commission, because today it takes nine months to take a decision, it's two months in the US. Mm -hmm. Today, when you put a tariff on the Chinese steel, it's 20%. It's 300% in the US. UK is behaving as if they were in a situation to be UK versus China. Germany is behaving as if they were Germany versus China. But it's not the case. We are European Union versus China. And if you accept that you are European Union, you are much stronger because you have the first global domestic market. So you have to resist and be tough. Otherwise, you think about your domestic market with China, which is the case today, and you have a lot of countries saying, I will not be too tough with the Chinese because my people, my economy is so dependent on China. You're one of the only <coughs> French political leaders to talk about Europe these days. You're among the only ones to not play it and to think that it could attract people, that you can revive people's interest in Europe. How do you plan to do that? How do you plan to go out of a long period where Europe was a scapegoat, was the responsible for all the ills of the French economy, responsible for the crisis? How do you plan to go about this? My first comment is, we need Europe to succeed. In the steel case, no way to succeed without Europe. So my perspective is not the one of a classical politician to say, our problem is Europe. No, Europe is the solution. But even if it's a solution, you can be demanding. Because one of our problems today with Europe is also the lack of political commitment in support and the fact that we leave the floor to a sort of a bureaucracy. But more than that, I do believe that Europe today for a lot of problems, a lot of our challenges, is part of the solution, is the core of the solution. Because when you look at the recent events and what we experienced, we get financial and economic crisis, terrorist attacks, refugees, all this stuff are about global risks with asymmetric effects on our countries. Do we think one sec that you are better equipped at the national level to deal with this crisis? 
I don't think so. Do you think the stars are aligned? I mean, a lot of, of this depends on the health of the Franco-German relationship, and it <laughs> takes two to tango. How do you plan to overcome the differences, the different interests, national interests of France and Germany, and, and take Europe forward? How would you go about it? I mean, first of all, you have to look at the situation today. We are at one of these moments where the divergence between France and Germany from an economic point of view is very important. And that's a weakness, a collective weakness. 10 to 12 years ago, it was exactly the opposite. Germany, we know that, was the sick man of Europe and France was in a much better situation. So that's an issue because it's less obvious. And especially when you look at Germany today, almost half of their trade is made with non-Eurozone countries, which makes it less sensitive to Eurozone issues. But beyond that, I think you have to see where the psychological veto are on both sides, and the trauma, and all these things which block the relationship. In France, it's about treaty change. On the German side, it's about transfer union. When you speak about transfer union, that's a big trauma. They say, okay, I will pay for other people. I don't want to see that. Okay, so I have a good solution. We will do both. Because we need both. Now, one of the things we do at these playbook events is some rapid-fire questions of the lighter nature. So don't be scared, but do give <laughs> short answers. Um, <coughs> so, first question. What character would you like to play on film or stage? Or most like to play? Julien Sorel. Super. Um, <laughs> uh, ski or swim? Ski. Ski. Uh, when was the last time you assembled a piece of IKEA furniture? <laughs> <laughs> He's laughing to give himself time. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Too far to <laughs> But you have yeah. assembled. Okay, good. Um, have you ever been to Panama? No. No. no, not even for tax purposes. No, not no. even, uh, not even represented there. But it seems to be a beautiful country. Okay. <laughs> uh, Batman or Superman? Superman. Mm -hmm. I say Martin Aubry. You say. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note, I want to thank you for taking the challenge to come and join us at these first playbook cocktails. So thank you very much. A round of applause. Thanks, thanks to you. And that was Emmanuel Macron speaking last year to Ryan Heath and Pierre Briançon of Politico on stage in Brussels. So now it's time for our EU WTF section and uh, today I'm joined by one half of the usual Brussels Brains Trust, Alva Finn. Hi Alva. Hi Andrew. And as uh, Lena is away on holiday, I have roped in Politico's own Harry Cooper. Hi, Harry. Greetings, Andrew. Hi there. So I thought we'd talk first about the revelations today about commissioners' travel expenses. We have a story on the site on Politico about this. This just covers a couple of months of 2016, but it took the NGO behind these revelations a long time to get even this information. The headline on our story is about a trip to Baku, Azerbaijan, um, from, by Federica Mogherini that cost 75,000 euros, and various other revelations contained in the article. And I just wondered what you guys thought about it. Alva? 
Well, I think one of the most interesting things was the response from the commission saying that, you know, they didn't want to release or they were they released it finally, but there was a, a big administrative burden on them by yeah, basically revealing these expenses, which I think is just a little bit of a silly excuse because we all know that when they're looking at funding funding other people they ask for all of these details very rigorously and i think that yeah they should just be a bit more transparent about what they do and they don't spend harry what do you think about the expenses themselves the numbers commissioner spent close to 500,000 euros on 261 official trips i mean i'm not that scandalized to be honest it's a lot of trips 28 commissioners all of them pretty high-ranking individuals yeah, I mean, they've toured around Europe, they've toured around the world, as one would expect of politicians, and the figure's not that much, really, especially when you consider, and just immediately springs to mind, the case of the British MP who bought a duck house with public funds. So, I mean, this right. seems to be relatively... Yeah. No duck house sense. revealed in these, no duck uh, house. In these of, expenses. Of course, this is about the missions, trips, so yeah. it doesn't cover necessarily all of their expenses, but in terms of the content of the expenses, it doesn't seem that shocking. Do you think this will put pressure on them to release more of this? Because I think the Commission today was saying we don't plan to release this routinely. It's once again, they cited the administrative burden. Uh, Should this be or will they face pressure to just release this routinely, as is the case for politicians in some other countries? Actually, if you look at the website of Access Info, which is the NGO that has been fighting for the past three years to get these expenses, they've done a very convenient layout so that you, as a citizen of Europe, can request, you can do your own personal request to each of the commissioners for the next sort Mm. of six buckets of months. So I suspect they may have um, opened a can of worms by allowing uh, these two months to be revealed. Yeah, and also, like, I am privy to a lot of anecdotal evidence from people who have been involved in meetings led by the European Commission. And so many people say, you know, I get contacted by them three weeks in advance. Maybe it will put a bit of pressure on them also to to reduce their expenses. Well, we'll see whether this uh, prompts a change of heart on behalf of the Commission. We'll move straight on to EU thumbs up. Alva, I know you had a nomination for this week. Yeah, so my one is a bit kind of out of left field. I received into my email box a email from the Fundamental Rights Agency, and they basically convened a high-level expert panel of communications experts. And this was... Let me just stop you right there. What is the Fundamental Rights Agency? So they're uh, the EU institution that watches how the EU implements human rights. So the high-level panel was made up of communications experts, including journalists, satirists. Really? Satirists? Yeah, literally from across a huge scope of communicators, political communicators, anthropologists, all of these people in a kind of Chatham House rule, so everything was not attributed to anyone. But it was a very interesting report and a very interesting effort, I think. To try and... Communicate better? For them to, and this is what the whole point of it was, they said it was in response to an urgent need to more effectively communicate the fact that rights and freedoms belong to everyone in a kind of post truth, post Trump populism era. So it's a real recognition that we aren't doing it properly. And it's one of the first times I've ever seen an EU institution get these kind of communicators together and really admit, you know, we are coming up against the ropes at the moment. And 
there was a lot of things about persuadables, like who should we be targeting, how should we communicate to them, you know, more visual, all of this kind of thing. And I just thought, well done, you know, getting all these people together. I haven't seen another EU institution do something like that. And how would that change, do you think, the way that they do communicate their agenda, you know, their campaigns for human rights? How might we see that change or, or how is it going wrong at the moment? Is it too much jargon or...? Yeah, definitely too much jargon. Then a little bit of also kind of condescension, too much legalistic kind of theorising. And, you know, I'm also from that background and completely guilty of it as well. But when I, in a response to particularly Trump being elected, I heard people saying we want to communicate in a different way. And is that really happening? I don't know. And it's not just an appeal to the EU institutions. They really make this appeal to everybody from the NGO world across the board. You know, we need to communicate these values, which are European values, better and in a way that people understand and not talking down to people. Right, now time for Dear Politico. This is the advice section of the podcast. We've had some pretty heavy letters in recent weeks, so I'm pleased to say at least for the sake of variety, we have some that's one that's a bit on the lighter note for summer. Uh, and this comes from a correspondent who doesn't say whether he wants to remain anonymous or not. So just to be on the safe side, we'll call him Jason. But he says, dear Politico, and says nice things about the regular team of Ryan, Lena and Alva. So we're trying to keep the standards up here while Ryan and Lena are away anyway. And he then says... I'm about to start an internship at an NGO in Brussels in a couple of weeks, and I'd like to make the most of my time in Brussels. This is the first time I'm going to work in Brussels for an EU-related organisation, and I really want to engage the most I can with the political environment and possibly learn tips to advance my career, make contacts, etc. Do you have any advice on attending events, socialising, or simply meeting people working for the institutions? So he really wants to make the most of his time inside the Brussels bubble and he's looking for our advice. So this is definitely one where I step back and uh, leave it to the experts. Uh, Harry, do you want to go first on this one? Oh gosh, well, um, I arrived in, uh, in, in Brussels about six years ago. I was actually working as a lobbyist at the time before jumping into the European Parliament for five years. And... I mean, the only piece of advice I have really is just go to Place de Luxembourg. That's really the, the only thing you need to do. I'd also say that the bubble is kind of fractured into multiple bubbles. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, there's, it, there's many ways of doing it. But the key one is to go to the bars on the Thursday in front of the parliament, if that's right. really what so you want to do. So for, just for non-Brussels listeners, Place Lux is, uh, the, is the big square in front of the parliament, or right? Or Plux, as it's is often really? abbreviated yeah, to. Plux. Plux. Yeah, okay. Pluxing is also a verb that's become quite well established in okay. the city. And that means hanging around Place Lux? Loitering. Okay, loitering <laughs> with intent. Drinking. Drink, loitering with and intent drinking. Loitering with intent contacts. to network. Yeah. Okay. Alva, any tips? Um, yeah, I mean, I also used to hang around plucks when I was a stagiaire and it Mm. was very fun at the time I have not been there in a very long time and now I hate it Mm. so why why do you hate it yeah it's just a bit schmoozy and I think when you're a stagiaire and coming out of the parliament and you want to go get drinks it was great because it's a big open space and it's nice in summer but I would implore you please don't just go to plucks and think that's that's what Brussels is and I know that you want to be a member of the Brussels bubble but there's a lot in Brussels and also where you can network. There's lots of things on in the summer, for example. Aperurban is mm. one thing that I think is good. What's that? Aperurban is basically on Friday 
afternoons in the summer and mm-hmm. it's in different parks and kind of outdoor areas i again haven't been there in a long time uh, other places where you could you go you just stay at home now don't you oh yeah <laughs> with, the, with my cats uh, <laughs> Well, no, I still go out, but I saw a different side of Brussels after I became a stagiaire. And I think it's it's important to kind of like get out and not just see the usual kind of stagiaire places like, you know, Parvis, Saint-Gilles, mm-hmm. the city centre as well. The Dansar area is really cool. And maybe you want to kind of, I don't know, speak French or speak Flemish. Dansar area is good mm. for that. I mean, I think what's interesting about this whole notion of the bubble, there's this idea that we're all part of this weird sort of Brussels Eurocrat community but well, when I first arrived here I did not plan to come to Brussels I certainly did not plan to stay in the bubble I didn't even know what the bubble was so you're actually what he's actually way ahead yes. of himself right. he knows what he's doing in the first case I guess if he's coming here to work for the first time he just wants to get to know people and I guess make sure people know him yeah. and as you say it sounds like he's already well on his way he knows what he wants well, he knew to email us. Didn't yeah, exactly. He? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> there you go. He's already knows. He already, Ryan. He I need to. Exactly. To get into he knows this. the he knows the movers and shakers. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks to you both very much. Alba, you're off on holiday, right? Yeah. Well, not for another two weeks, but. Okay. So you're I'm around s- next week. I'm scratching the walls, waiting to go. But, okay. Yeah, Great. I'll be here. Well, thanks, Alva. Thanks, Harry. And uh, that's it for another dear political. And that wraps up another EU Confidential. Do remember to spread the word about the podcast via email, social media and good old-fashioned word of mouth. And please take a minute to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks this week to Wei Dong Lin and Cynthia Crute. And we'll be back next week with another EU Confidential. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.